This is the new Criterion. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. On February 24, 2022, we welcomed Kelly Jane Torrance, op-ed editor at the New York Post, to speak before the young friends of the new Criterion. She discussed life on the front lines of the news cycle, and in particular, the war in Ukraine, where she served as an election observer in 2019. If you would like to join us as a friend or young friend of the New Criterion, we invite you to visit newcriterion.com friends. Now we join Roger Kimball in the offices of the New Criterion. Um, it's it's uh, my pleasure to introduce my friend Kelly Jane Torrance, who uh, is the op-ed editor of the New York Post, the most important paper in the city and maybe in the country. Uh, and uh, she has been doing that for only a matter of months. Uh, before that, she was uh, on staff at the Post, and before that, she was working for a magazine called the Weekly Standard, uh, a former magazine, I should say, a defunct magazine. And before that, you were the Weekly Standard. I'm the only person in history who goes straight from the American Conservative to the Weekly Standard. There you are. That's what she did. Anyway, she, you know, she has, she's right there in the in the, the driver's seat. Um, I use that term, driver's seat, advisedly, because Charlie's Canadian, so she does a lot about trucks. Uh, and she, you know, uh, she's going to tell us what it's like. She's planning to stay home today, write a few words about her remarks for tonight, but she was called in because the room seems to be falling to pieces. And she's going to tell us a few things about what it's like to be at a newspaper, like a daily newspaper, like the Post, uh, in the work. Well, thank you, Roger. And I have to say, uh, you know, if you told me when I was a teenager in Edmonton uh, who would go to the one newsstand in the city that sold the new Criterion and <laughs> bought it and read it religiously every month that... Um, you know, one day I'd be speaking uh, to a new Criterion crowd. I, I forgot to mention that she's a woman of impeccable taste. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know when, uh, when James finally accepted one of my pitches and I got into new Criterion, I actually did a little happy dance. So uh, it's, it's a real pleasure, uh, real pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, so as, as Roger said, I wasn't supposed to be working today. Um, but I'm going to tell you about my day. Because, um, you know, what it's like to be in the news business when a crisis happens, which of course everybody knows uh, what happened last night. And, um, you know, one of the reasons I took today off is that I usually do not finish work uh, until at least after 7. And so I took the day off mostly to get here on time. And I think a lot of people don't realize, uh, you know, the news business does not have your typical 9 to 5 hours. Um, but it's a job I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't trade uh, for the world. Um, so yeah, so last night I, uh, I, uh, I talked to a friend in Kiev and he said that he'd heard that Putin's going to start an invasion at around 4 a.m. Uh, his time. And I've been skeptical, I confess, over the last week that Putin was actually going to invade. And I thought, okay, well, it's a specific time. This is a little more specific than, you know, Wednesday, as, uh, as President Biden had said at one point. Um, but I was off to an event uh, with Gary Kasparov and Ines Cantor Freedom, and I thought, well, this is, you know, if anything's going to happen, this is the place to, to be in. And so I was there kind of late, and I thought, yeah, there's not going to be an invasion. I'll, 
was going to stay late and, and have a good time. So, uh, first of all, I woke up this morning, uh, you know, with a little bit of a headache, let's say. Hmm. Uh, you know, enjoying some beverage with some other freedom lovers. <laughs> um, and uh, so I find out, you know, I'm going to be working today. Um, and so one of the first things I wanted to know is, um, as Roger said, I recently became op-ed editor of the House, and, you know, we have the op-ed pages, but we actually have columns, a lot more columns in the paper than that. I don't know if you've seen the print edition. We've been, in the last year especially, we've been doing a lot more columns in the front of the paper that accompany news stories, so, you know, readers can read a story and then get some perspective, some context on it. And uh, in the audience tonight is Douglas Morey, who's our newest uh, upfront columnist. Um, so, you know, it's not just a couple pages I have to help fill every day, it's really quite a few more. So, you know, I wake up today, okay, what, what do we need? What are we going to get? Well, first of all, of course, I'd already commissioned some stuff yesterday. Um, and obviously, things change, the pieces change. So, uh, John Hurst, who's at the Atlantic Council, was a former ambassador to Ukraine. He actually ended up filing at 2 a.m. Uh, <laughs> early this morning. And you know, it was great to have something that first thing I could go to edit, get it online. Here we've got someone uh, you know, with experience talking about the situation. And of course, he focused on uh, A, why America should care about what's going on in Ukraine, and then B, what we should do about it. And uh, it's funny because um, uh, you know, talk, I asked John to do a piece yesterday, and he said he wanted to call me to talk about it first. I was a little surprised, and it turns out he was a little worried because he actually thought what Biden had done so far was not terrible, and would that be okay? <laughs> um, and, I, and I said, well, you know, what else do you plan to say? He then had a litany of complaints about what Biden had done that he should have done, and I said, yes, this is going to be great for the <laughs> uh, But, you know, that's one thing I think is important to realize, too, is it's great to have some diversity of opinion. Obviously, the New York Post has a conservative editorial slant, but within that, of course, there's a lot of debate raging, as you know, about this issue as, as about any other. And you know, it's, it's good to have some you know, debate in our pages, even. So, um, you know, I, I confess that I ran a piece a few days ago um, that started something like, you know, just, you know, despite the, the uh, constant media drumbeat to war, Putin's not going to invade Ukraine. Kind of regret that now, but he actually made some good points about, um, hey, if what we want to do long term is think long term, and what we need to do long term to make Putin pay for what he's already done is increase domestic oil and gas production. Um, and so I think that point still stands. But um, you know, I'm, 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 I can't believe I'm telling you about a little bit of egg on my face here. But uh, just so you know, what it's like is you know a situation like this unfolds. Uh, you know, even the experts, and this guy that I published, I mean, he's been studying this stuff for years, um, you know, can get it wrong. Um, so, you know, John Herbst did the, why should we care, what should we do? Well, I also got a piece yesterday um, from another person um, that really focused on sanctions. Now, of course, this is, you know, Biden's top tool that he's using, but he's not actually doing much uh, in terms of sanctions. And uh, I got this great piece uh, from uh, Dalmar Rohak. And uh, so the first thing I did this morning was write to him and say, hey, do you mind uh, updating this? Uh, and I'm actually glad, it, the piece was actually supposed to run in today's paper, and I'm glad that we, we got full and it had the hold because he was able to update it um, with, first of all, what happened, and then a further update on uh, after President Biden made his uh, remarks today on sanctions. And so 
you know, you're sort of thinking of how, what, what are the issues that we have to cover? We may have a limited amount of space, can't cover everything, but what are the things um, we need to cover? And one, one thing I haven't mentioned yet, you're probably wondering, well, what about inside Ukraine? And uh, for that, um, uh, I've really been turning a lot lately uh, to a friend, someone I haven't met, but known from the internet, um, who's, in, who's been in Kiev and uh, reporting there. He's actually someone who was uh, raised in Brooklyn. He's got dual uh, American and Russian citizenship, Vladislav um, uh, Davidson. And I've been talking to him on the phone all week, and uh, it's been interesting because he also was very skeptical of an invasion happening. He's the person that told me last night that he heard it's going to happen at 4 a.m. Well, his sources weren't too bad. It happened at 5.50 a.m. So, uh, but it's been interesting to see the change in his voice over the last week, you know. He was very, uh, you know, talking, you know, he wrote a piece, uh, you know, for me, uh, I think about a week and a half ago, saying that America is creating panic by saying there's going to be an imminent invasion. And it's actually hurting Ukraine. And he talked about, uh, for example, like a week and a half ago, all the major, major airlines said they would no longer be flying to Ukraine. Well, this is a huge economic blow uh, for the country. And uh, there were also worries that there would be a run on the currency, all of this stuff. Um, so he's been an invaluable source. And I also um, uh, have a number of other of contacts in Ukraine, although a lot of them are in the west of Ukraine. I was actually in Ukraine in 2019 as an election observer uh, for the parliamentary election. Uh, that President Trump called uh, President Zelensky to congratulate him on his party showing. Uh, you may have heard about this phone call. <laughs> 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 um, you know, so uh, I, I was, uh, you know, uh, so of course I was in Kiev to have briefings before and after the election, um, but, you know, we're all sent to different parts of the country, and I was sent to uh, the West, to a place called ivano Frankivsk which is very close to Lviv, which is uh, where a lot of uh, countries relocated their embassies in the last uh, week or so as they started to worry that Kiev would actually be hit. And I really hope I'm pronouncing Kiev right, and I know I'm not, uh, but I'm, I'm close. I, I literally had a, a translator and driver while I was in Ukraine who spent, I think, about an hour with me one night trying to get me to pronounce it perfectly. Um, you know, I'm better than I used to. Do not say Kiev is all I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I will say the dress I'm wearing tonight, I got in Ivana Frankis. Uh, was a local designer. I got a few of her things. And uh, I, wore a, uh, I wore a blouse last night uh, that she made, and I'm wearing this dress now. And, uh, uh, you know, I, the first time I wore something of hers on television, um, you know, my, uh, uh, the driver who, who, who knows her and recommended her stuff to me, sent her a picture of me on TV wearing her design. She was very excited. Um, but this is, you know, just my way of, of saying that I, I stand with uh, Ukraine, and uh, I do hope that, uh, you know, we're all praying, uh, I think, for, for what the people there. Um, but, yeah, so I have a lot of contacts in the West. Of course, they're not as worried. And, in fact, um, people even think if Putin really wants to uh, take over the country, and I think most people I've talked to think he's not as interested in so much as uh, direct control, as just regime change, putting in a puppet, as he has had uh, in Kiev in the past. Um, but they think that he's not interested in the West, because there's certainly going to be a lot more, um, uh, you know, uh, they're, they're, you know, I mean, nobody, very few people in Ukraine, let's say, in, in Kiev, uh, you know, want Putin to come in. But I can tell you the West is really, really anti-Putin. And 
You know, as an election observer, uh, you know, before the election, I went and interviewed uh, representatives from all the major parties, and then on election day, traveled uh, from you know constituency to constituency, and there were a list of questions I had to ask as an election observer, but I was also allowed to ask whatever I wanted to. Um, and you know, because I'm curious, I asked a lot of questions. Um, and you know, one of the things that really struck me, by the way, was uh, the number of women I talked to who uh, talked about their sons. Ukraine's a very poor country, uh, and let's face it, this is because it's had corrupt government after corrupt government. Um, you know, you, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a lot of people here who want Putin to take over. There's maybe some that don't really care. Um, but uh, Ukraine itself is really, uh, its government has done its people no favor since it got independence, um, um, you know, in 1991. And, and uh, so these women would say, you have to leave Ukraine, really, to get a job in many cases. And, you know, some people go to Poland and, you know, other places, although, you know, people in Poland are leaving to go get jobs in the mm. United Kingdom. Um, but so, you know, if you're interested in the energy sector, you go to Russia. And these women told me that, uh, you know, since... Uh, you know, Putin seized uh, Crimea, annexed Crimea. Uh, they really don't want to go, and they get depressed. You know, they come home for a break, and then they have to go back, and they're really not looking forward to it. Now, of course, Putin is trying to say that uh, Ukraine's Russians are brothers, and it's really the same people. Well, they, they don't quite see it that way. Um, although what's interesting is uh, when I was in Lviv, um, there was uh, a lot of people in this main square selling bracelets and other things with blue and yellow, the Ukrainian flag colors. And I thought that this was actually a recent thing. There wasn't a, as much Ukrainian nationalism until Putin annexed Crimea. And this has really brought out uh, Ukrainian nationalism. So yes, of course, there's a lot of connections uh, there. But there's also uh, a lot of differences that have been, that have been brought up. Um, uh, but in any case, I've been keeping in touch with those people as well. They're obviously not as worried about uh, what is going on. Um, and, you know, I have to admit they're, you know, I, I can't go to them for comments on, like, how loud the explosions were, the shelling and all that. Um, but it's good just to keep in touch and, you know, find out what, uh, what Ukrainians are, are thinking. Um, and I have to say, it's, it's really interesting to get some of these on-the-ground reports. Uh, so Vlad, the fellow I mentioned who's written for us, um, for example, he uh, reported that Sean Penn uh, came to town. And, uh, you know, I, I uh, you know, and he actually spent one night drinking with him. And then I found out, so Sean Penn, it turns out, is making a movie about Zelensky, the, uh, the uh, president of Ukraine. And, the, yes, like, literally yesterday, the day before Putin invades, Zelensky spent over an hour with Sean Penn. <laughs> If your country is about to be invaded, <laughs> what is the best use of your time? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, and, you know. By the way, this you know, this guy says, "Oh, I consider Sean Penn a friend." I said, "Well, he's basically a commie himself." He admitted that was true, um, but you know, uh, in, in wartime, I guess. But I mean, these are the interesting things you find out when you actually talk to as many people as you can, uh, you know, on the ground, and this is stuff that. You know, we just can't get anywhere else. And so, uh, despite you know uh, the time difference, the extra work it costs, it's well worth it uh, to have someone like this. Um, I think I'm almost up with my time. I just wanted to maybe have a little uh, 
uh, artistic content, since this is new criterion after all. <laughs> so uh, I was really looking forward uh, tomorrow night to going to see uh, Valerie Gergia uh, conduct at uh, conduct with the, the Vienna Philharmonic at Carnegie Hall. And I'll be honest, I got a booster a couple days ago just to go to this concert. <laughs> uh, because Carnegie Hall, like many uh, of our uh, major cultural institutions, is uh, requiring boosters. Um, obviously, it has nothing to do with science, because I called to find out, does it have to be two weeks after my booster for me to be able to go, like it is with regular vaccination? They're like, oh no, just, you could get it like an hour before. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so... This concert is was sold out. I actually um, kept, I actually locked out and managed to call at the exact moment one ticket became open. Um, the woman literally told me people have been calling all day, no tickets, and suddenly one came up. Uh, and it was a prime seat, which I really wanted to get. It was two hundred and fifty dollars. I thought, well, you can't, you know, put a price on hearing a Russian conduct one of the greatest orchestras in the world, uh, my favorite Rachmaninoff symphony. Uh, the second, and uh, of course the famous rock second piano concerto uh, with the Russian uh, pianist playing it. Uh, well, I, you know, once uh, events started happening this week, I thought, okay, there's definitely going to be some protests um, because uh, Yergiev is uh, seen as a pal of Putin. I don't think this is entirely fair. Um, you know, certainly this is not the days of Stalin, um, but, uh, you know, with uh, Shostakovich basically. Uh, having a bag packed every night, ready to be arrested at any moment. But it's, Vladimir Putin is an autocrat, and you have to go along to get along in some ways. And uh, anyway, I won't go into the history of it, but uh, Putin's from St. Petersburg, where Yergia uh, runs the uh, Mariansky Theater, which I highly recommend. I was uh, there for the White Nights Festival in 2012, when I saw, uh, for a, a week and a half every night, I went and, and saw. So anyway, this, you know, this, he's a great conductor. Um, and so I knew, I knew there'd be protests. Well, I find out today that there's not going to be protests because Carnegie Hall gave in before there was a single protest. And um, Gary is no longer conducting. And tomorrow night is the first of three uh, performances. And I've actually been debating whether to get a ticket for the other two because there were still some tickets left. Uh, the programs weren't quite as good. but uh, And I'm glad I didn't because uh, they replaced him was a great conductor, Yannick uh, Negesian, but I didn't pay $250 to hear Rachmaninoff conducted by a Canadian. And I say that as a Canadian. <laughs> um, and, you know, when I tweeted out this news, uh, James Panero responded with a piece he'd written in 2015, um, which talked about these, these increasing protests. Um, and, of course, he saw this coming long ago. And, again, I expected protests, but I really wasn't expecting them to immediately uh, shut it down. And, you know, this is not something that is going to be making huge news because, of course, uh, the real cost of war is in human lives. And I understand that about 60 Ukrainians have died so far. And, uh, you know, a couple hundred have been injured, and there's certainly more to come. But, um, you know, as I, as I you know, was, was saying earlier today, um, you know, culture is always important, obviously. But I think it, cultural exchange is especially important at times of political tension and even war. And to, you know, cancel someone, uh, you know, certainly not like uh, the conductor has talked about how great this invasion is. And, you know, uh, you know and as James pointed out on Twitter, uh, in, the, in the Cold War, uh, cultural exchange was something we thought was very important. Again, 
you know, it's not the Russian people who have conducted this war. Uh, and, you know, it's hard to tell what the Russian people quite think, because obviously, um, you know, any, any surveys done uh, when you have basically a dictator in charge are not going to be accurate. And it's true that, uh, you know, and I hope I'm not overgeneralizing, but I think it's true that the Russians tend to like strongmen uh, politicians. But again, it's not the Russian people who are invading Ukraine. And in fact, uh, some polling shows that this war is not popular at all amongst the Russian people. Um, and so it's frustrating to see uh, our institutions uh, caving like this. And, you know, I have to say it was a long day. Uh, I meant to write my talk, didn't get a chance, and uh, I, I had, you know, given myself a bit of time to, uh, you know, put something together. And I, I'll be honest, I spent it angry at Carnegie Hall <laughs> instead. But, uh, you know, anyway, I hope that gives you an idea of what it's like uh, as a, you know, relatively new opinion editor at a, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, I think we're the fourth or sixth largest newspaper in the country by circulation. Um, and I'd love to hear anyone's questions, if they have any uh, questions they'd like to ask. Uh, I'd love to hear more about your experience as a, a Ukrainian election observer, um, what you look for, and how that affects your view of Ukraine today. I mean, it was a fascinating. I, I, by the way, I felt like very honored to to have been asked to do it. It was the International Republican um, Institute that uh, asked me to do it, and uh, you know, I uh, I was not paid uh, to do it, although they did, of course, pay my uh, expenses to go there. Um, and I actually had to take vacation days to do it because I my employer there wasn't didn't quite you know wasn't sure this was newsworthy. But anyway, um, no, it was it was really fascinating and. and one of the reasons I really enjoyed the experience was that I really got to talk to a lot of, you know, what we might call ordinary Ukrainians. Um, so, you know, we got we get a briefing uh, beforehand, and so there's a list of questions we had to ask uh, that, that we had to ask people, and also questions um, that we had to make observations for. So, you know, some of it's you know typical stuff like uh, were the was the polling uh, station uh, accessible to people with disabilities. Um, was the poll, you know, could people make their vote in secret? Uh, you know, these are basic things uh, that we don't realize there's a reason that we have observers in countries like Ukraine because there have been issues uh, with these things not taking place. And, uh, you know, so most of the questions that I had to ask people were sort of based on that. And then there were things like, hey, have you, have you seen anything suspicious, um, you know, Basically, like you see a bunch of people come in with a bunch of ballots and you know stuff like that. But um, you know, I took the opportunity again. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm a chatty person and I like to learn about people. That's one reason I got into journalism to ask them questions. And you know, I, I, for me, you know, what, the, the most touching moment was there was at one point, uh, and again, not everybody speaks English. Uh, and I had a translator. Um, I. You know, I know, I learned a tiny bit of Russian uh, when I went to Russia in 2012. I'd forgotten most of it. And uh, Ukrainian uh, is its own language, although a lot of them speak Russian. Uh, and there was one uh, moment this, this, uh, this uh, man was really, uh, you know, really seemed emotional. And the translator said that, he said, I can't believe that someone from America is asking my opinion on things. And asking, you know, one of the things I asked was, you know, uh, is there anything you're looking for from the West, from America? 
you know, I asked this regular because I was curious. You know, do you uh, what, what do Ukrainians want? Do they want to send? Do they want to send military help? Do they? You know, what do they want? And, and you know, it's just so touching that this man couldn't believe that someone from America wanted to know his opinion. And I, you know, it, it made me feel glad to ask it. But this is the thing. You know, we, uh, you know, we always only hear from politicians, not you know, uh, people. And of course, we like to think politicians represent the people, but that's not always, um, you know, the case. Uh, and it was just, it was really a fascinating experience. And that, you know, again, you know, I mentioned the, the people uh, sending their children out to, you know, and this was the thing. Uh, when Zelensky uh, came in, and he, he was a relatively new president at this point, this was the parliamentary elections. Um, so he was a comedian who was on a very uh, uh, big television show. Uh, and a lot of people I talk, smart people I talk to, uh, you know, including intellectuals, think that they created this. So in the show, he was president of Ukraine. <laughs> and people think that he actually had decided he wanted to be president of Ukraine. And this was one way to get there, was to star a show. Uh, I mean, it worked. <laughs> Um, you know, so he was relatively new. You know, I wonder what people thought. And the overwhelming sense I got from Ukrainians was that they were very hopeful. Again, as I said, they've had corrupt government after corrupt government. It doesn't matter if it's a pro-Russia government or, you know, what you might call a more nationalist government. They've all been pretty corrupt. And so there was a lot of hope. Um, although I will say, uh, you know, one question I asked people was, there, so this, it's funny that this invasion, uh, you know, makes me th think back to this. Uh, but there was some worry, actually, that people thought, okay, maybe is Zelensky going to be too close to the Kremlin? And so I asked a few people about this, and I think the most memorable response I got was uh, a fellow who said, no, I'm worried he's going to be a tool of Israel. <laughs> Zelensky is Jewish. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I, as you know, I love to talk. I, I was kind of dumbstruck and, and couldn't really speak for a few <laughs> seconds after uh, that one. Um, but, it, you know... Again, I, uh, I I have great hopes for the Ukrainian people, but uh, there's no question that there is a certain amount of anti-Semitism in the country, and that certainly <laughs> reminded me of it. But um, no, and I've kept in touch with a, a lot of the people um, you know that I met there. But uh, again, talking about you know the western part of Ukraine, um, so you know I went to constituency after constituency that day, but let me pick one to actually watch the vote counting at the end of the night. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of observers, people are counting, and so it turned out one person, this, this was a relatively small uh, district, but one person, one, voted for the pro-Russia party. And nobody would believe it. Like, there were people saying, this count must be wrong, like, are you sure? Like, that's how anti-Putin uh, they are in Western Ukraine. Uh, so, anyway, I hope that maybe answered the, you know, some questions there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a lot of people, um, you know, so, you know, in my, uh, in my uh, briefing in Kiev at the you know, beginning uh, of my trip, uh, we heard from every, you know, major party, and uh, there are some major pro-Russian parties in Ukraine. Uh, and again, they don't get much support in Western Ukraine, but in other areas, uh, they do. And so there are quite a few people willing and able to uh, step in. Um, and by the way, you know, one thing I should mention is um, the language issue is really interesting there. Um, so, for example, I interviewed um, 
uh, representative of, of one of the most um, you know, sort of nationalist parties, we'll say in Ukraine. It was, um, uh, I can't, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the name of the, uh, the party now, but um, the woman spoke Russian the entire time. And it's not, you know, you speak Russian because you, you love Russia more than Ukraine. It's more, this, my family has spoken Russian for, you know, years and years. Um, but I will say, uh, my uh, translator uh, spoke both Russian and Ukrainian. And uh, he made a point, he told me later, and I, I kind of thought this, because I, you know, I tell some differences in languages, but he confirmed this later, that in all of his replies to her uh, translating, he spoke to her in Ukrainian. And he said he did, he did it to make a point, uh, which I thought was, was quite uh, amusing. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, the translator was a very smart guy who actually tried to immigrate to Canada, um, but uh, Canada's a very different immigration system than the United States. Uh, people think it's a lot more open and welcoming. Uh, well, it's based on a point system. And he was rejected because they didn't have enough points. His wife didn't speak one of Canada's national languages. Uh, English or French, and so he, he was unable to. Uh, but anyway, he he actually said that sitting in on my interviews, he changed his vote uh, based on some of the stuff that the, the people said. So I do think it'd be great if people had the opportunity that I did to actually get to interview and ask a lot of questions um, of party officials. Um, but so Zelensky actually, um, there was a little. One of the reasons people worried he might be uh, pro Kremlin is that he he would speak Russian in all of his appearances. Um, and of course now he's, he's kind of switched, he, he tends to speak Ukrainian more now. Um, but it's, it's uh, anyway, sorry I'm off your point, which is uh, about, uh, you know, there's, there's plenty of people in Ukraine who are, you know, willing to, and, and a lot of Ukrainian oligarchs have connections to the Russian government. Um, again, it's very lucrative to have connections to Putin, and, I mean, it's risky, you know, you might get on the wrong side of him and end up in jail, as we've seen, uh, you know, happen to some. I think we have one more question. I think Heather McDonald has a question. Oh, Heather, great. Thank you. Uh, to be politically solipsistic about this and focus back on America's political situation, this whole situation is, has focused or focused attention on a rift within the conservative movement. You have Tucker Carlson at night you know, railing that this is not of our concern and, uh, you know, we should let this go. Fox during the day with many of its anchors and guests being more traditionally hard line on this. I wonder where Fox's audience lies. Are they more in the Tucker camp or in the more hawkish group? What is your read on how this will play out and what it reveals, as we already knew, about the growing divide within the conservative movement? That's a great question, Heather, uh, who's, uh, I'm lucky enough that right, right to the sometimes if she has time, uh, she's, you know, very in demand. Um, but, you know, there's, you know, people, a lot of people outside, uh, you know, the movement think that conservatism is this monolith. And, of course, it's not on a lot of issues. And I think uh, war is one of those things that when it happens, it really brings out some of the divisions. And certainly we saw that, um, you know, with the rock and, um, you know, uh, which was brought up, of course, in the 2016 election at some of the Republican debates. And we're seeing that again now. Uh, I have to say, I, I almost want to watch Tucker Carlson's show tonight because uh, Vlad, who is the my friend in Kiev, I keep mentioning, is going to be on tonight, he says. 
Um, they apparently saw his pieces in the New York Post that have invited him on. And I'm very curious because, um, uh, you know, uh, Vlad is a dual American Russian citizen, but uh, really loves Ukraine, has written a book called From Odessa with Love. And so I'm curious as to how that interview is going to go. Um, no, and this is, you know, again, this is a long debate, and we saw, um, you know, and I, I joked earlier, I'm the only person in history to go straight from the American conservative to the standard, and one reason I made that joke is, of course, American conservative was, is the anti-war conservative magazine, and, you know, people uh, think of the weekly standard as the neoconservative uh, magazine, of course, it made its name, uh, especially during the Iraq War, which I wasn't there that, by the way. Um, but, uh, I mean, this is, so this is a long, long debate, and I think, um, you know, you know, I'm trying to be careful here. Yeah, so Heather tough. asked me a very tough question. Uh, you know, we, you know, I, I, I strive for diversity of opinion in the pages, but, you know, I'm going to be honest, I'm, I'm probably not likely to publish someone who parrots Putin's talking. Um, and again, there's an argument to be made about what America's interests are abroad, and I think it's a, a very healthy debate to have, and I'm glad to see it happening. Um, but at the same time, there's no need to use an autocrat's talking points in making that debate. And I think that's one thing um, that, you know, even people that might be sympathetic to arguments that such as what Tucker Carlson's making might pause a bit at some of the way he's uh, making those arguments. Um, but, you know, Americans are very patriotic people, uh, and, you know, uh, Putin is, made, is clearly an enemy of America. I mean, what, you know, you can decide uh, how important that is, what, what, uh, what we should do about it, but it's clearly he is. And, of course, uh, what happens in Ukraine has consequences everywhere, even in Americans' pocketbooks. Uh, I have to admit I was a little surprised today when President Biden, in his speech, um, warned oil and gas producers not to hike prices to exploit this crisis. Um, well, <laughs> prices are going to go up. <laughs> this is not an exploitation. And of course, uh, you know, as I said, uh, you know, if, if President Biden really wants, again, in the long term, to make Putin pay, the best thing to do is to encourage, incentivize domestic production, drive prices down. Which, and I'm saying that even though I'm from Alberta, and uh, you know my sister, uh, her ex-husband, the current one, uh, all get their money in some way or another from the oil industry, so it's going to hurt them too. But I still think, let's do this. Um, you know, I had an, I had a, a writer right earlier this week, for example, the connections with uh, Biden trying to get an Iran deal, and of course. There have been people in the administration who have talked about, hey, if we get Iranian oil up there, we don't have to worry about Russia. Well, you know, this is, anyway, but, you know, there's a lot going on in these debates. And I get the impression that the audience is a bit divided. You know, we just had a Republican president who was very much of the, you know, non-interventionist type, we'll say. Uh, although, notice that uh, Vladimir Putin did not do anything differently in Ukraine while Trump was president. Uh, you know, he uh, annexed Crimea under President Obama and is now invaded under President Biden. Uh, you know, certainly I don't like some of the comments Trump has made about Putin, and uh, Rich Lauber wrote a great piece for us today uh, talking about 
Trump's latest interview, in which he called uh, Putin savvy. Uh, you know, he may be savvy, but that's certainly not the most important thing to say about him. Uh, but actions are different than words, and uh, the Trump administration was actually a lot tougher on uh, the Putin regime than his predecessor or successor's administration. And in fact, again, uh, sent lethal aid uh, to Ukrainians, which President Obama refused to do, and President Biden seems uh, very reluctant uh, to really uh, ramp that up. So I hope that answers your question a little bit, Heather. <laughs>